trolling, trolling for ten baggers. Trolling, trolling for ten baggers. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. You're here with Joel and Sam. We're here to talk about finding 10 baggers. That's a stock that's gone up 10 times. There isn't much out there about how you find a 10 bagger, so we chat to people who've found them before. In the show, we talk to all sorts of guests about all sorts of different things, but just remember that nothing included is advice. Make sure to speak with a professional advisor about your own circumstances before making any financial or investment decisions. In this episode, we speak with David Blake from BioShares, which is a newsletter and research service covering ASX-listed biotech and life sciences companies. We talked to David about all things biotech, the different types of companies on the market, their life cycles, stages and milestones companies have to work towards, their funding cycles, what to look out for and what you might consider as an investor in the sector. This interview was recorded over two sessions, one in late 2019 and the other in early 2020. Some of the audio quality isn't the greatest, but we hope you can listen through and learn something from the discussion. So with that said, we hope you enjoy the show. All right, David, well, thank you very much for coming on the show. Perhaps we'll just get started if you can just give us a little bit of a background about what your current role is and what your involvement in the financial markets has been. Oh, thanks, Joel. For the past 20 years or so, um, I've been um, publishing, along with my uh, business partner, Mark Pahaj, a an investment report called BioShares. And that's focused on ASX-listed uh, life science companies, which cover um, you know, medical device companies, companies that are trying to develop drugs or what we call therapeutic products as well, uh, diagnostic companies, and even um, specialist software companies. Um, most of these companies are little uh, companies that are always looking for cash, but offer um, incredible upside if they do get things right. So we publish weekly in a PDF uh, email format. Um, originally, we started out doing it quarterly, and then we found out that that just didn't, you know, suit customers' requirements for more time information. So uh, that's uh, what we do, and um, that's pretty much our bread and butter. Okay, so that's purely in the research side that you work then, and you're not involved in the corporate financing side or transacting with companies at all. No, no, it's just it's just research. It's a uh, it's a humble business, but it's uh, lots of fun. We also have a an investment conference we hold each year in New Zealand. All right, David, can you give us a really quick summary of the different categories of biotech companies? Sure, uh, thanks, Sam. Uh, yeah, the there's three or four or five, depending on how uh, deeply you want to uh, cut the life sciences sector all up. We generally talk about life sciences as being the same as biotech. Um, because that way we can include companies that might make products for veterinary use. So you have human medicine on the one hand and then veterinary on the other. But amongst, um, say, human health, you have companies that are developing therapeutic products. Uh, Then alongside that, you have companies that are developing diagnostic uh, products or information tools. And then you have companies that develop or make and sell instruments that can be uh, used by um, hospitals for diagnostics or for clinics who want to do a telemedicine um, you know, consult with uh, people you know, anywhere else, but not in the clinic. 
And the thing about therapeutic products is that gets cut up again by a number of different types of technologies. So the old classic uh, technology that everybody knows about is, is what's called the small molecule drug that usually is made into a pill. And you can be given that in a hospital. You can be buy it in a chemist and take it home and take it once or twice a day. You take paracetamol, that's a small molecule medicine. The big revolution that occurred, um, you know, I suppose 30 years ago was the development of what we call biologics. And that's where we figured out that there were these molecules in the body that you could, uh, if you like, uh, end up copying or tailor to, to, to use as uh, medicines. And so then we developed um, protein therapeutics or equivalently biologics because they're like biological um, molecules and that developed an entire new stream of medicine uh, or therapeutic product. We have cell cells themselves that we actually harness and say, let's try and copy a cell or make a cell and then reintroduce it in the body to do certain things. We have uh, alongside that vaccines. As a, they've been around for a long time, but they also um, can sit within therapeutic products, even though they're actually not a therapy, they're uh, there for prevention or prophylaxis. Uh, you get, uh, apart from instruments, you get people who just make uh, equipment that are used in um, you know, uh, managing, you know, within the healthcare setting as well. So there are probably fewer of them listed on the ASX, uh, but there are some. So that's a really brief snap, snap, you know, snapshot of the different types, the major categories out there. Another way to think about this sector is that it gets uh, regulated according to these different uh, product categories. So um, particularly with the FDA, if you're a biologic, you, you get regulated by a different department or section, uh, division, I forget the exact name of that division. Um, if you're a small molecule drug, you can, that's a therapeutic, you get regulated by another, another area. And they, and these pathways matter because they uh, exist because the regulations and rules for the different technologies vary and different demands are made. And that actually is a reflection often of manufacturing. So right at the guts of the life sciences is, is a whole lot of stuff about manufacturing it turns, out, it turns out to be quite crucial because if you don't get the manufacturing right from a safety point of view, if you don't get the manufacturing right from a cost of goods point of view, you don't have a business. That's fantastic. I think it gives a really good, um, I guess, not just overview, but awareness of how large the space is. So we're not just talking about drugs and that means it's the opportunities are just immense and very, very broad by the sound of it when you consider it that, everything that, that, that goes into are. the medical it, space. It's mind-boggling, and it's and it makes it what what is difficult for Australian investors is that we uh, uh, in the we get to see all this as one big universe, and really it has to be cut down and organised according to the different um, subsectors. It's much more meaningful that way. You know, you develop investment rules and investment concepts for each of these broad subsectors, and then even again in some of those, you have to refine your rules and refine your um, approaches to investment quite quite uh, separately. Thanks, David.
Uh, it might be a bit of a hard question to answer without an example, but are you able to talk sort of more generally about the life cycle of a biotech company and the drug development process and what the sort of key milestones are? Yeah, I can. I'll have a go. It's it often starts with a discovery that might be made about a um, uh, a disease where a researcher in a university or a research institute, more often than not, finds that there's a um, the disease is connected to a misfunctioning of a biological process, and they find a um, what's called a cell receptor or some part of the um, pathway in that biology which is dysfunctional and once they've done that they say well what if we develop a way to stop that um, disease occurring by stopping this you know um, pathway malfunction so that's when the uh, discoverer of that um, malfunction um, calls in a medicinal chemist or another um, uh, drug designer from the biologic side and uh, in the process of this, you might have spent anywhere from um, you know, $400 million to $2 billion. Uh, the, the figures vary enormously, and it depends on the type of disease that you're chasing. But uh, it can be, it can be uh, in some instances, um, not in the billions, but in the low hundreds of millions of dollars to get to that uh, registration point. And that's just getting to registration. There's much that happens after that, and we'd probably leave that for another time. Keep in cost-effective manner. Then you have to do a whole lot of uh, preclinical, uh, maybe more preclinical testing in, in specified animal models that the US, US FDA and other drug regulators <clears throat> expects you to be able to show uh, the validity of the drug in. Uh, then you have to do other testing, uh, toxicology testing, uh, stability testing, and by that time, you might be ready to put it in humans. And once you get into humans, you have to do a safety study uh, in a small number of healthy volunteers just to, to find out how the drug uh, works. You do a little bit on it's what's called pharmacokinetics, uh, where you see how it's distributed throughout the body. Uh, does it stay there for half an hour? Does it stay there for half a day? This is all quite important and can relate to how you want to manage that disease as well. So once you've done your phase one study, you might then try and do a phase 1B or head into phase 2 where you're looking to see whether it actually has an effect on patients with the disease. And that's when it gets uh, um, demanding and difficulty, difficult, but it's also where you can start to get value uplift is when you've got a, a drug that's being shown to have an impact on, on disease in patients. After you've done phase two, well, that's when you do what are called registration studies or phase three studies. You often have to do two of these if you want to enter the US market. And that's where you have to uh, use, the, the benefit here is that in a larger number of people, you can actually iron out some of the statistical deficiencies that you might get in small uh, patient uh, groups. It's more representative of a larger population, so you'll get a, a better take on how it actually does work. These are also hopefully done against placebo or standard of care to show that it not only works, but it is, is better than um, an existing drug that's used as standard of care or against placebo. And once you've got your phase three uh, study data um, completed, then you can go off and um, make a submission to a regulatory authority such as the EMA or the FDA. And then they will say, well, thank you very much. Um, come back and talk to us in nine months' time and we'll um, make a decision about your application for this new drug. You mentioned uh, 
about the phase one study and, and obviously the fact that the phase one B affecting patients and a value uplift. What I want to do is go back a second uh, and work out implications for speculators. What's, what sort of statistics or results should they be looking for at the end of a phase one or phase one B study? Um, well, the, the phase one study is all about you know, evaluating the safety of a product. Um, you know, what, to what degree has it uh, caused any harm? Um, sometimes you can find a signal, but mostly it's about finding out information about the, uh, it's the, the drug's tolerability, um, whether or not it might cause a, react, a rash or it causes people to vomit. Um, so sometimes a drug will do that, but it can be accepted. You know, it, it, tolerability is a funny word because, you know, if you're um, in a really tough position, you might tolerate a lot more of a bad drug because it's actually going to possibly do something that's very advantageous. So uh, phase one studies are important because where you can pick up uh, what's called pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic data about a drug, and that's how that drug might um, be, uh, you know, uh, stay in circulation in, in, in the blood or in, in the body. If a drug just has a very short half-life and you think that, um, they usually sort this out beforehand, but it's good to get that evaluated in that phase, phase one study where it really is, say, in you know, 20 healthy volunteers, you know that you put the drug in the morning, it's there six hours later, you do it again in the afternoon, it's there six hours later, or you know, maybe for 12 hours. And that means you can figure out that, well, it's going to check the box for twice a daily, twice a day dosing. So, uh, and people often think, oh, that's no big deal, but it can be really important because let's say you design a drug that is, seems to meet the criteria of, or, or, or is shown to be okay for dosing over uh, twice a day. Then if you go back and you look at the marketplace and the marketplace says, we want a drug that you can dose once a day, well then that drug is actually not gonna get anywhere unless it's got something stupendously brilliant about it when it comes to the efficacy of it. So that's when you have to go on to the next phase of you know, testing it in patients who've got the disease or the condition and finding out that it does remarkably well against a placebo or against a, you know, that, that other maybe gold standard drug that's out there in the marketplace. So the phase, the phase one is, um, is uh, not trivial. Uh, it's not something to be ignored. And it does, ultimately, at the end of the day, it's, it's about finding out whether you can have confidence to progress it in phase two. And phase two is like that too. You know, can you go from phase two into phase three? So you don't, uh, the difference between a phase two trial and a phase three is you're going from, you know, a small number of patients to many patients that, and those many patients would be more like the real world. And uh, you can have sometimes in phase two a brilliant result and then it collapses in phase three because lots of things came into play to do with the types of patients you recruited for the phase two trial. And when you get more patients, they're more like the real world. So there's a few things to consider about phase one there. It sounds to me like it's a good risk reward proposition for an investor at, at that phase one level. Is that fair to say? And, and how materially more difficult 
would it get on a phase two or three? Uh, it, it can be um, way more risky at phase two and phase three. Uh, the, um, the sums of money involved to run clinical trials are bigger, but then if you come out of it, you, you can be incredibly de-risked and suddenly the valuation uplift, especially at the end of a phase two trial or phase two B where you can have done a study that shows that your, uh, the drug is better than, you've proven, say, safety, in phase one, you've done more safety in phase two, but that phase two B study um, shows you that you've got something that is competitive. Um, then the uplift, assuming that there's a uh, uh, reasonably, um, you know, th th there's an opportunity in the market for something that's new, uh, the uplift can be really significant. And that's what um, captures everybody's attention. That's why last year, we saw Opthea um, OPT um, do extremely well um, with their eye drug um, OPT 302, and uh, they went from uh, being, I think, less than a dollar at the time to being, you know, a multiple of that. And that was all about a very concise, clear, strong signal result that said it's all st all action stations from now on. And you could probably actually run that through to a phase three trial and to, to translate that to, um, in fact, um, a successful outcome in phase three. Are there technical parameters around this? Because from my understanding, this industry has a lot of regulation. What, when does phase one become a phase one B and it's phase two or two B? The difference between a phase one and a phase, a phase one A and a phase two, 1B is that usually a phase 1A will be where a drug uh, or a therapeutic product is administered in what are called healthy volunteers. So a bunch of uni students say I need a few dollars because uh, I um, have to pay X, Y and Z and they, they will go into a trial and that's where though they're usually healthy males as well. You don't, you don't load drugs into women who are of uh, childbearing age. So that's where you want to really do a good proper safety study to find out whether, um, if it's gonna harm healthy people, there's a bit of a better chance of them coming back from the brink. So, you know, very small doses uh, started in these people, they're elevated uh, to higher doses. They, they like to see what, what type of dose might elicit uh, what's called toxicity um, or, they look for what's called the maximum tolerated dose. And that, no, then the one, if, if they've got some good idea about that, that the drug in healthy volunteers and they can start to put it into patients that um, are the target, target population or, or, or a selection of them, if you like, because sometimes they, they'll just have to take a, a bundled set of sick patients. And that's the phase 1B in the sick patients. And that's when they can start to... Um, observe its safety in that proper patient group and at the same time maybe look for some ideas about its activity. Phase two, phase two is an expansion in some ways of a phase 1B, but that's when you add in a placebo group or a control group to, because what you want to do is that randomised controlled study where the, the, uh, the the, the therapy or the drug is blinded, you know, half the group will get a, a placebo or the gold standard. Usually it's just a placebo and nobody knows which is which. 
and that way you can actually uh, manage for a bias that might come in with um, people being given the one drug because you know a single arm open label what's called open label everybody knows what they're getting might seem to be really good but at the end of the day it doesn't really tell you much about its genuine performance okay that's really fascinating and and I guess phase three is, is an even bigger one, which, which is what you need for FDA and, and US approval. Is that right? Yeah, the, the FDA likes to see two phase three studies done so that you can actually filter out population effects and to look for um, with even greater certainty into um, side effects because uh, you, you get, uh, you move away for homogeneity to heterogeneity you know homogeneity is where you have more alikeness and heterogeneity is where you have more differentness and amongst if you do a thousand patient study you might recruit say people who are over the age of 50 with an eye disease but they can vary for lots of reasons because they could come from an area where there's a lot of air pollution or they could come from an area where there's a lot of diabetes so you want to build up more of a uh, sample group that's more like the real world and that way you might pick up you could end up picking up something that means that you really don't want to continue with the drug because it turns out to be quite dangerous for a particular subgroup of patients and and the you know the you, the regulators of the world are very very cautious about um, issues that might pop up and you know cause people to expire quite unnecessarily hmm. that's really fascinating I guess one sort of question for people uh, that probably a few people always want to know or ask is explaining um, the efficacy and, and what sort of results would we be looking for? Uh, well, the e efficacy is, is really a function of what is called the primary endpoint. And, um, you know, that's the, that's the goal of the trial is a, the primary endpoint might be that a drug performs better from a baseline uh, measurement. Um, at the beginning of the trial, it might be to either decrease uh, a, uh, um, a parameter, a biological parameter. It might be that you know, the idea is to change symptoms. So um, you decrease them or sometimes you might want to see an improvement. Um, and that really is such a case by case thing. Every trial will have its particular you know, primary endpoint relating to efficacy in a phase three study. I'm guessing that each of those steps, stages you talked about, the general sort of stages is measured in years, not months. Would that be a fair statement most of the time? It is. It's, it's one of the uh, big challenges for, um, if you like, first-time investors in this sector to uh, appreciate how long it can take for a, uh, a new medicine to get to the market. The, it can be anywhere from you know, a minimum of 10 years. Sometimes if you date it from when an observation was first made by a scientist, it could be 20 years. So one of the reasons for having um, patents um, in this area is that is that you think with a 20-year patent, well, you're going to get 20 years in the market. In fact, what you end up usually getting is, is at maximum 10 years, maybe with a few extensions. And, and it's really uh, um, important that you don't let that... Uh, time on the uh, patent clock run out because then you can actually find yourself with a worthless asset because uh, after that generics can come in and, and uh, all your work will have been in vain.
when would a patent get registered? Is that almost on the idea at the very early stages, or is it once it's been registered towards the end? Uh, no, you do it fairly early in the piece. You get what's called a priority date, which is part which is submitted when you um, submit your application for the first time. You establish uh, that, and that that priority date stands there so that you can uh, have that to compete against other people, other inventors, and their patents. So. Uh, then after that, the application date is um, from when the clock starts. Oh, so Five when does that 10-year clock start? Sorry, not from the priority the, date. The 20-year 20, from... clock starts from the filing date. And, uh, and then that will sit there, And but you might have made that filing. You might be spending you know, um, 10 years doing your phase two and phase three studies. You can get extensions if the FDA... Oh, sorry, if the US Patent Office... Um, or if the process in the US is delayed, um, and you know that might might be six months or seven months, but by and large, it's a really, really, really big deal that you rush like mad to um, get everything done as quickly as possible. Unfortunately, there are a lot of companies around the world that uh, are not as uh, quick as you'd like them to be. So sometimes they have to file. Uh, continuations to those patents um, to get extensions to that um, exclusivity they have over their inventions. They find ways to um, extend the life of them, and it's a, it's actually a huge business as to um, you know to, to do what are called life cycle extensions through um, patent strategies and technology iterations and improvements. Fantastic. Are there any other distinctive? distinct differences in the Australian market and the way people perceive biotech and life science companies versus in other markets? Uh, there, is, there is a very uh, local perspective that's applied to biotech and uh, that is to equate it with... Uh, in, they, in Australian investors equate investing in the life sciences of biotech as investing in um, mining exploration and junior resources. And that's works to a point that it really doesn't hold. Um, sure, it works because you're investing funds um, in uh, speculative um, activities. But once, once you just say, well, okay, this is money that I can completely lose on this venture, um, you know, and it is actually, which we, we would have to admit is venture capital, but on an equity market, um, then there's, the, the likenesses disappear completely. Because what uh, marks out the life sciences is, is that this is a regulated um, area of product development, which has probably got more in common with, say, the aerospace um, and aviation industries than anything else, uh, because it's highly regulated. And it's actually regulated from the point of view of safety. So safety comes first. That's the ethos of the, um, every regulatory authority is to, um, to to look at a proposed product from a safety point of view. That comes off the back of safety, which relates to manufacturing, manufacturing as well as safety regarding how a product is meant to be used in a clinical or hospital setting. So that's that's um, a unique feature. It, it actually helps though with. Um, having created an appetite or an, you know, an acceptance of high risk amongst Australian investors. And that's why, that's why it's prospered in this country. And we've actually 
had, interestingly, why we have a fairly inadequate venture capital sector is because we've had a very, very active venture capital sector. Uh, you mean listed, the, listed capital under listed. your listed. Yep. Well, no, we, 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 private equity venture capital has, has been a, had nothing like the uh, weight and scale of uh, the US venture capital industry. But in Australia, many small biotechs have been able to get going because the um, ASX has been a happy home for um, equity venture capital for a very long time. So there are a lot of um, investors and a lot of um, uh, financiers who say, we, we, can, we can work with this, that's all right. We, um, we've got the skin for it. Thanks for that. Are you able to talk us through the different participants in the market from a funding point of view? Like to different groups, whether it's funds or private investors or different parties become involved at different times of a company's life cycle? And I ask because I think it might give some context for retail investors, particularly the fact that some money is often raised before companies list on the ASX and then often more is raised once they're listed. Ah, well, there's a real, yeah, there is, there are some uh, fairly uh, distinct differences. You have uh, with smaller cap um, companies that, that you might describe as being more in that startup and early phase, they're not likely to have um, institutional uh, investors on their register. And one of the reasons for that is that they're just not big enough. Um, you get, if you were to magically uh, take a $20 million company overnight to $500 million, $500 million in capitalization. The, the weird thing is that you could actually start to tap um, institutional investors who simply because of that change in capitalization could say, well, we can plant, um, you know, a million dollar investment here and it'll be, um, you know, uh, fit, fit within our capital we have available in terms of, the quantum of funds we can deploy, and it would be sit well below the um, significance uh, standard for reporting to the ASX. So that's uh, what what you start to know is once you get above two or three or four hundred million dollars in capitalisation, institutional investors can become far more um, ready to invest, and they're also then at that point sometimes driven by index uh, rules to. Um, uh, make investments in, in, in those companies. But at the small end, uh, you find mums and dads, you find specialist investors, you find uh, people who've been investing in the biotech sector for a long time who just simply uh, pick that uh, uh, time in the life of the company to invest because they know that that's how they're going to get their 10 to 15 uh, times returns in five or six years' time. Yeah, I think that's really good because I just think the um, the different participants make up for an important sort of consideration when you're looking at who you who you're playing with, who you're buying shares from, or selling to when you're on the market. And also, also at the um, bottom end, uh, amongst the smaller microcaps, there are a lot of um, active um, investors who make their living by buying and selling stocks, and they um, there's actually um, in my my guesstimate, significant numbers of people, uh, in, investors who actually become market makers for um, biotech stocks. They, um, you don't know that, you don't see them, but they are uh, providing liquidity, uh, which can be of great benefit to um, a company. But that liquidity also matters to other um, investors as well. Um, 
there are some companies that just have zero liquidity and, and because of that it actually turns off lots and lots of other investors. So I can't I can't buy stock and I can't sell it. I like the story, but the liquidity is a really, really big feature across equity markets anywhere, anytime. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting comment because that's one thing that's in, in common with many other sectors as well, isn't it? It's just that when, the smaller down your stack you go, sometimes those liquidity constraints just really hurt the dynamics yeah. of whether people are going to be interested in yeah. the, the story. You can, you can tell from particular share price charts, they look like uh, the, uh, those um, land formations in, in, in the Grand Canyon or, or surrounds where you see these flat top um, meters followed by, yeah. you know, uh, plummeting um, cliff faces and it comes up to another flat top. And that's, that's, that's actually tells you something about that company. You can instantly say, see it and say, no liquidity. Um, but if it's got lots of ups and downs, there's uh, tussles in terms of um, views on valuation where there is, it's more of a bit of a um, Himalayan peak uh, formation, that can actually instantly tell you that there's a pretty um, strong... Um, argument about valuation uh, with that company right in front of you. It's easy to pick. And in terms of selecting companies, is there any sort of first steps or resources that you can suggest that investors might look at when they're first starting out picking a company? Yeah, one, one very basic one, and, and this is something that uh, anybody uh, can do who can sit in front of a screen, is to um, always check a company's um, cash position. It's actual cash. Uh, thankfully, um, Many years ago, the ASX uh, introduced a rule to have uh, certain types of companies report quarterly and to report on their cash position. And this has been one of the best things the ASX has ever done for investors in small caps and small cap biotech because it's, it's forced um, the uh, uh, revealing, the revelation of the actual cash position of the company. They even adapted it so that they could get companies to talk about their uh, outgoings for the following quarter. So you, maybe you can take that with a grain of salt. But that matters because if a company is um, clearly um, spending more than it has got cash left in the bank at the end of the quarter, and it's been spending at a rate that's quite high, um, well, then you can uh, make some decisions about whether or not you need to um, stay in the stock or maybe look for signs that the company's raising money. So we publish every um, quarter a survival index edition and go through and calculate um, a score for each company. So if a, score, if a company has a score of less than one, it means it's got less than one year's cash at hand to cover its activities. Now, that's usually um, a sign that the company should be looked at with some uh, close regard and you'd be hoping that the company has got uh, either a fundraising underway or it, it's got strong confidence that can receive funding through maybe a tax refund or something coming in the next uh, six months. If it's less than uh, 0.5 or it's got less than six months cash at hand, well, that's actually a really big cause for concern. And we found that that's really helped uh, investors in biotech just to um, help them filter uh, and sort and separate companies that could be uh, in trouble from the ones that you know they can stay with and um, you know not not have to necessarily dump from their portfolio. But it goes back to this this uh, survival index uh, that we produce actually ends up telling us more about companies and their capacity to raise funds and their the their 
ability to access funding. Some companies, um, it's, it's pretty funny, they start getting concerned, um, you know, three weeks before the end of the quarter. And you have to wonder what they've been doing for the past 12 months, because as soon as you've raised um, money, if you're a biotech company, you actually have to start the process of raising money again, because when you were developing a medical product, device, drug, diagnostic, you were going to go through a set of um, stages or gates where you'll move from one period of, you know, phase of development. And when you've completed that, well, then you then can be in a position to go and um, tap investors for funds again. But that's on the basis of an improved valuation because you have um, reduced risk and you've increased the, um, may, maybe got closer to, um, uh, you know, getting closer to the reward point that you want. So accessing funding um, and looking for how companies um, are skilled in doing that can <clears throat> be evidenced by the presence of, say, a corporate advisor or whether they've got a mandate with a particular broker so um, or, you know, um, corporate finance group. If they don't have these, you go, well, um, maybe they're just amateurs and we shouldn't have anything to do with them at all. You talked about the survivability index and you know, your, I suppose, proprietary method of um, assessing a company's cash burn and survivability. But I think that's something that's really worthwhile for investors to note is that it's not a particularly complex process for them to do. And that sounds like your method obviously weights the cash burn as well. A larger company is going to burn more cash. So you're just measuring on a time frame point of view rather than yeah. any kind of really complex financial. Yeah, yeah it, it is. And it's actually why what... Um we don't do anything special except to gather and put all this information into the into a couple of pages. And investors probably do this with the companies that they're interested in. But we, why it's also useful is we use the one method for all companies. So nobody complains and says, oh, that's unfair, I don't like what you did, because we're just applying the same rules of calculation each time in the same way. And that makes it also um, as fair, and it also makes for um, you know uh, a reasonable basis of comparison with other companies. And in fact, it's a universal thing. And we we're not doing anything original. We just you know copied this from a a group in the US that we saw doing this about 15 years ago. And we thought, oh, well, that's useful. And I suppose following on from um, you talked before about whether a company has a corporate advisor or a broker or someone supporting their their um fundraising activities and that might lead on to another more general point is if how would a shareholder or an invested interested investor might find out whether they do have somebody sort of appointed to them or mandated to help them with that is that something that's always released to the market or do you need to sort of inquire with the company and find out what they're it's uh you can you can uh you can ask the ask the ceo to find out or, or uh, you know um a company's um cfo or company secretaries find out if they do have a mandate and they'll do they have a relationship with a corporate finance group and they'll say yes we do or no we don't but you can also um, sometimes pick uh, these um, relationships up when companies do complete capital raising you simply read the uh, announcements and look for um, a statement that the um, fundraising was led by a particular group you know there was a, a lead manager or a co-lead manager and sometimes you can then, over time, see that that was um, ongoing. Um, when we publish uh, our BioShares quarterly report and we do a 
tabulation of all the capital raisings that have been um, completed in the quarter, we uh, make pains to point out who these lead managers were or if there were special and significant investors. And uh, sometimes you'll see that there weren't any, um, but often there will be. And if you go back over time, you'll see that there's been a, an ongoing relationship. And sometimes you'll also see <clears throat> as well on the bottom of announcements um, a reference to two different uh, groups of people. You'll see a reference to a PR firm and then you'll see a reference to an investor relations um, person and that might be a consultant from a specialist um, investor relations group. And that actually can be taken as a fairly positive sign that the company is wanting to make sure it is uh, working with professionals who are connected to the market. So you can pick up a lot from reading, um, you know, uh, announcement companies make if you know what to look for and how to interpret that information. That's fantastic. And that might lead on to another point that um, we mentioned prior, which was just, I suppose, the interpretation of the company data, company announcements, and whether whether you're being told, not, not necessarily the wrong thing, but is that everything or what the context of company announcements are. Do you have any thoughts on uh, yeah, how uh, companies communicate to the market and how <laughs> investors should receive that information? Uh, they, the challenge here is to, um, this is where uh, experience does uh, pay off. Um, and you have to uh, go through um, several, if you like, uh, relationships that break up before you start to understand how it all works and then you decide it might be time next time to uh, go into that relationship with um, far a far better uh, sense of preparation and information at hand. So there are a lot of things that companies just don't tell investors. They, they aim to naturally uh, put the, the best spin on their um, stories that they're telling through their announcements. Um, they aim to put the best spin on what they're doing through their presentation, that is slide decks, which they will um, make when they do roadshows or give at um, investment meetings. Um, but these become, you know, releasable um, sets of information. So I read these all the time. And it's it can be pretty easy, as well as annual reports and half yearly reports too. A giveaway is the big glossy annual report with lots of photos of people with pearly white teeth running along the beach. Um, I tell you, I don't need to see them ever, you know. I would just rather have, you know, plain, um, unadorned um, annual reports uh, with no pictures. That would suit me. But, you know, I'm, I'm N equals one in that regard. But the point is that uh, companies distract investors through these um, communications and uh, it requires uh, investors to build up knowledge about what they should know they need to know. So. For example, companies rarely talk about manufacturing. They rarely talk about cost of goods. They rarely provide actual product data uh, or demand that might exist for the data, uh, demand that might exist for the products that they're wanting to uh, bring to market. Uh, they often talk about, you know, um, sales uh, or, or market. They describe markets in terms of sales rather than prescription or actual units of a of a product that's been sold um, or dispensed. Um, they don't often talk about disease prevalence um, and incidence. They don't talk about, uh, you know, they, they will talk about, they don't 
often want to point to talking about, say, standard of care or how things are done and whether there's... A, they're not going to talk about a marketplace that's actually quite happy with how things are being um, conducted at the moment. So it's, uh, it takes a while to um, understand what needs to be um, looked for. Uh, they also often fail to update investors on their um, patents and when they might expire and whether they've um, filed new patents. Um, you can get it, it's there, but you've got to push them for it. And that's one of the things that investors really have to take on board with investing in biotech companies is to have a let's push to get more information from management. Let's ask the questions about the things that they have but they're not telling us and let's ask the questions of them that they don't have the answers for but should have because uh, sometimes companies, you know, um, don't have competition data because they haven't done the work. That's pretty embarrassing. Um, and if you can find solid information about um, competitors and competing products and you can put it to the company, what about this? And they say, oh, okay, um, well, maybe that's a reason to not invest in the company because the company is simply not doing the job. Or there's it's a reason to not invest in that management. It's interesting. Yeah. And I think that you know that's obviously the, the problematic view. And on the flip side, it shows the opportunity where doing some of your own independent research from you know, often publicly available information might actually give you an information advantage over other people in the market. Well, you, you, you can. And I think, I think that, you know, I'm, I'm sure that there are investors who've done that. You don't hear about them because, you know, one of the things about investment markets is there are a lot of people who work silently and independently and if they're doing well, you never hear about them either. Um, and, you know, okay, why should they be on the front page of the Fin Review and the business page of the Australian? I mean... Um, you know, leave leave the people who want the headline stories to their ego. Um, you know, if the AFR and the Fin Review just want to talk about banks and institutional investors at the top end of town, fine. But if other investors can, you know, busily and quietly make money from numerous opportunities out there, fantastic. Absolutely. I suppose on the another point, and going back to some of the things we talked about earlier, was the um, the long lead times that it takes to get a, a drug or a product from idea to commercialization. Are you able to sort of walk us through some of the opportunities maybe in the pitfalls that people might do it, think about when they're um, putting their money into these companies and the different times and catalysts, I suppose, within them? Sure. So if you consider that um, you the, the basic unit of measurement in, in, in the life sciences is the decade. They call that your, you know, uh, your standard period. And, and once you say, well, okay, uh, you then can take away your anxiety about something, events that will happen, you know, in one quarter versus another or one year versus another. And because what happens is that uh, companies typically um, overestimate how long things will take. They end up then uh, communicating and this overestimation to investors, and it becomes a tragic uh, um, Shakespearean performance is the milestones aren't met, the, uh, the investors run away, the share price collapses, they run out of money, um, a seemingly you know, solid asset with great potential uh, you know, is uh, found um, on the rocks, on the coast. If a better understanding of the time it takes and the knowledge that, sure, a company can you know, have an own goal when it comes to developing something, but it can also have be you know subject to 
many, many, many uh, problems or, or, or risks outside of its control. You know, if a regulator says, well, we've got a backlog and it'll take six more months, okay. You will say, well, if the share price is going to uh, soften and plateau, but I can still within my own um, investment um, plan, um, you know, tolerate that extension, you'll do it because the upside over the long term should be really high. And when it comes to um, investing, I think that over time, one of the great um, tactics that people have learned to adopt is to, um, if at all possible, get in at the cheapest possible price in in the um, in the in the uh, development cycle. Now you get people who like to come in to pre-IPO rounds. They do mezzanine financing. They'll get in at a um, that's that's partly driven by wanting to flip out over a pub over the IPR if they're not a scrode. But if, you, if you're there at the early stage and uh, things go well, you might have bought a stock at 20 cents. Um, it could be that in five or six years' time, that stock has had ups and downs with gyrations of 100% or um, you know, seemingly gone up to 80%, 80, 80 cents, come back to 40 cents. But over time, it, things work their way in a positive way, it could be that 20 cent stock becomes you know, a $4 stock. And uh, the thing is that that 20 cent entry price has meant that the investor can tolerate significant volatility on the way to that, that um, if you like, notional um, you know, proper value uplift point of $4. So that's uh, a lot of investors um, who don't know what they're doing buy uh, stocks at what I call the top of the promotion cycle. Uh, and the promotion cycle can be, can relate to a company that um, knows it's got uh, a couple of milestones ahead. It probably wants to raise money and it, it, uh, that promotion cycle and the way that you know, the market works, see that stock go from you know, um, a low level to a high level and uh, suddenly there's a capital raising and then after that, the stock falls back um, and settles somewhere else for a long period of time. But that 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 uh, there's a huge um, effort to made by companies and their you know financiers to get people interested. And it, it always uh, you can see it a million times. With uh, it's happened a lot this year where stocks have just uh, jumped ahead of um, news, followed by capital raising. So if you can avoid that. Um, avoid it, uh, but people can get so excited when they're told a really, really um, well-structured and uh, you know, enticing story about what a, what a you know biotech company is up to. And I suppose on the flip side of that, um, going back to what you mentioned earlier, is once the capital raising is completed, then the funding is at least well assured for another another cycle. <laughs> so it's another opportunity it is. once the it is it's a new Usually, milestone that's been met. What what would interest me is looking at a company that. Um, uh, secured funding. Um, it might not just be through. Um, it might be that it's uh, got a tax refund coming through. It could be that it's got non-dilutive funding because it's you know got a collaboration with a, a research group or another partner. And it might be that you know the funding risk is actually uh, lowered relative to other companies. Um, but then the then the issue is: is there going to be any? Um, uh, development milestones that can mean that you know you can justifiably 
uh, argue or there can be a, an argument made for the valuation of the company to increase based on its actual progress uh, of, you know, on, a, on a technical basis. And um, sometimes that's reflected and sometimes it isn't reflected. But nevertheless, buying after, um, buying when the stock price is settled is probably going to work more in your favour. Um, and also, um, another time to buy is when a stock, um, a company has had a calamity and its share price might have been trashed by 60 or 70 or 80 percent. If it is possible to understand uh, the reasons for that stock price crash, um, sometimes really, really good uh, returns can be made from buying a uh, heavily discounted stock. But it really requires a deep dive into the causes of that um, that uh, share price failure. If it, if it is that a, a, a drug conclusively failed in a phase two study or is conclusively rejected by the FDA, well, then it, it's all over Red Rover. But if there was a clinical trial um, in which the results were um, mixed, it could be that uh, with time that that, um, you know, savage stock price, that uh, disrupted company could be turned into a... Um, it could be restructured and recapitalized, and, and that happens quite a lot. Um, and then, and then investors come in and they um, do quite well. But it might, it might be that that what used to be, say, you know, a dollar, a dollar um, stock becomes a ten cent stock. Um, it might be that that ten cent stock never trades beyond twenty cents. But there's a, a massive uh, gain between ten and twenty cents going forward. Yeah, I think that that goes back to sort of being aware and across doing your own research and background before those mm. things happen, I suppose, so that when an unexpected mm. event does happen, you're informed, I guess, isn't it? Oh, and, uh, and maybe a good example, you sort of mentioned there some of the companies that even when a results aren't as expected, there's still other opportunities. I suppose on the flip side of that, sometimes a company might spin that to make it sound like, oh, it doesn't matter, it wasn't to plan, but we've got sort of plan B. That There's, there's some of the companies that just seem to be, exist forever and um, you, know, you see them hashing out new announcements, new projects and new products, but nothing ever seems to progress. So the, ah, well, the, the lifestyle company and the CEOs and the people that just seem to do it forever, what's the um, way to avoid those, I suppose, to identify which companies are actually well, going to deliver? Well, look at, it, look at the stock market this way. If you, this is a, you can, you, can, you can set up a business model. As somebody who exists from the uh, investments made by shareholders, and you can do this all quite legally and you can run a, a very uh, successful um, business, and it's called you know, my my um, business as a CEO of a speculative um, company. Has to be speculative. You can't actually really be you know earning anything. You don't want to do that. What you have to do is start a company with the technology from a university, uh, get a bit of funding. Um, but when you look at the costs of running a listed company on the ASX, um, that can be. 800 to a million dollars a year. You get yourself a salary of um, $400,000. Pay for a few directors. You have a pretty, um, a pretty. Uh, you, you, you can probably your, your overheads for this company um, could be 1.5 million dollars. But if you have assets that you can um, progress and always have an excuse for why they didn't work and never kill the program. And always keep moving them from one um, uh, indication to another. You can keep this going for 
a pretty a pretty long period, a decade or more, and uh, and you were relying on uh, investors who are ignorant, you know, the doctors and the dentists who do know about. Med- Ironically, this is the thing: you can get enough doctors and dentists out there to invest in biotech companies um, if you say the right things, hold the right dinner parties, and have the role, hold the right cocktail parties in certain suburbs of Sydney and Melbourne. And once you finish with one bunch of investors, you go to another. And you don't have to, uh, you know, you raise three or four million dollars at a time. And, uh, you know, courtesy of the liquidity makers in the small cap end of town who will trade on variations of cents uh, in share prices, um, you know, they might be happy to come in and, you know, play it. Might, might, there might be options that they can um, get uh, to sweeten it, to in, in inject or infuse liquidity into the um, proposition. Uh, you can make this work forever, and um, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of uh, vested interest. You can get people who like to be directors of biotech companies because it's a small sinecure uh, that you know means that they can balance out their you know um, annual household funding costs you know every year with a you know maybe 60 grand or another 40 grand here. So you know two directorships that's 100 grand. Um, that's pretty good as uh, pocket money if you're a non-executive director who just signs off on the board papers and doesn't do anything and just says to the CEO, okay, you're pretty good, okay, tick. And what are the ways that people can, I guess, um, try and avoid those, I mean, broadly called lifestyle companies or companies that just seem to be plodding along without any real hopes of success? Is that a matter of going back and looking at what they previously announced and whether they've stuck to what they uh, previously... Yeah, to look for, the, look, look for the pattern, look for a pattern of... Um, of um, moving on from um, one, uh, what's called an indication or a program to say, look, we we thought this molecule would work in this disease. Uh, it, it, we got a good signal, but it didn't work because of the, the trial wasn't really properly designed. Let's go and do it in another um, uh, disease. And you can go through the annual reports. Um, you know, life, life, the life of an investor, um, never forget, is about reading annual reports. If you don't want to do that, don't invest in stocks. They are one of your best friends. So be meticulous in downloading them and filing them and then be diligent in reading them and read them from, you know, back to front. Um, and always, always save and collect the prospectuses because that's going to be one of the few occasions when you get to... Um, look at material agreements that companies have signed. Unfortunately, in Australia, we don't have a means for these material agreements to be constantly made available to the market. It's a real deficiency. In the US, you can, but not here. Another thing is to companies that say that they're always in discussion with potential partners. Um, that's one of those little giveaways. And the other thing is that these companies more than likely have old and obsolescent technology you know, they, that's why they don't get um, um, the interest of more sophisticated life science investors. So, you know, look for the red, looking at the register to see if there are what I call, um, you know, uh, pedigree life science investors. Sometimes you get ones from the state. There's a groups like Baker Brothers or um, BVF um, from San Francisco. There are some other ones in Australia. Uh, they're not, not always a guarantee that the company has got uh, is, is promising, but it might be um, 
it might be at least a sign that the company isn't stuck in the past. Yeah, I suppose you're leveraging, aren't you, that they've done some diligence and... I mean, they, 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 they do things on the basis of intelligent assessments of risk. They're not looking for certain winners. Um, BVF, um, for example, you know, likes highly risky, um, promising new uh, emerging technologies because that's what's going to ge- generate the new productivity uh, gains, which will then give the um, 10 to 15 times returns on the original investment. But they can get it wrong too. You know, BBF got into, BBF thought that, you know, Binomics was going to be a winner. Um, but, for example, um, but it, it's made money out of other companies. It's uh, invested in Violetics, which was sold to, I think it was Violetics, um, which was sold to um, Merck for $500 million. So they made some good money out of that. I think that's a really good, that's a pertinent maybe finishing point as well is that there's that, it's a portfolio approach as well often for many people that are putting their money into these. I don't think many or any people are putting all of their capital into one one company or one idea as a as a way to get get the results they're looking yeah. for. It's really about a spreading well, of your risk. Yeah. Yes, uh, spread your risk. Um, you can have um, portfolios. You can have, if you wanted to, you could have multiple portfolios of different life science companies that you might um, you might organise a portfolio according to the stage of development you might have your you know earlier stage companies your later stage companies your ones that are mid stage and phase two um, there's different um, you know ways you can do that you can do it you know, um, and certainly you want to be paying attention to companies and uh, their um, potential milestones and when they're going to be um, reporting on. Um, you know, development events um, that can actually mean that you can. Oh, well, this is the point here is about actively managing the portfolio. It could be that there's a stock that is good, it's uh, nicely priced, but it might just not be worth being in that stock for 12 months. Um, just finally, then, David, um, without sort of giving too much away, I mean, that's why you have a paid investment newsletter. Do you want to just? Uh, round up about what that's all about and how people can get in contact with you and subscribe. The easiest thing that they can do is to send an email to david at biashares.com.au and um, get some sample copies so that they can see whether it suits their investment needs. Um, it's a 48 issues a year publication, comes out weekly and is um, uh, deeply and keenly read by Lots of very specialised, sophisticated investors in the sector. Terrific. So thank you so much for your time. Indeed. Thank you very much, David. Appreciate it. Good stuff. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, Joel. See you later. Music in this episode is called 10 Minutes by Green Monday and from twinmusicom.org. Remember, the contents of this show is not financial advice. If you have questions or need more information about your own circumstances, make sure to contact a professional financial advisor.